0: Let's pray together. Father, what a wonderful truth that we have that before your throne, we have a strong and perfect plea that we are one with you, that we've been forgiven of all of our sin. And because of that, Lord, we know, we know that there is no fear. There is no fear of being abandoned. There is no fear of being left behind. But we, are will, we will be with you always. And you will not cast us out. And so, Father, we are grateful for these truths that we just sung. We pray that you would honor yourself now as we open your word and study it together. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning again to all of you, and welcome to San Francisco Bible Church. It really is a joy and privilege to worship our Lord together this morning. And this morning, we find ourselves in the book of Psalms, and we're going to look at a significant psalm that has a lot of impact on both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles in the back that you can even take home with you as our gift to you. So if you need one, please feel free to go grab one. Psalm 110 says this. It's of of David. It's a psalm. And David writes this. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, Have dominion in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. In the splendor of holiness from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youthfulness will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings in the day of his anger. He will render justice among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will crush the head that is over the wide world, earth. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray one more time. Our Father, as we come to your word and as we study it, we pray, Lord, that you would allow for us to find the hope that you have laid out for us. May we hear your word and not just be those who hear it, but that we would also respond to your word as well, that we would seek to apply the word to our lives, that you would be glorified as we desire to live in response to the truths that we study together. And so we pray that you would honor the preaching of your word, that you would honor yourself, that you would glorify yourself so that we can be impressed with your majesty this day. Listen, in your son's name we pray. Amen. And Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And in fact, even as we read through the passage together this morning, I'm sure that you recognize the language from the Gospels or even from our time in the book of Hebrews. And often, when we read individual psalms, we tend to focus on how these psalms make us feel. Whether we find encouragement from the psalms. Whether we feel the sympathy from God as we see how it resounds with us. And there is an empathy that's there because, well, David did often write about how he was feeling and how he was responding to the truths of God, even in the times of darkness. And so we have this empathy displayed for us, shown for us, and it really helps us understand how we might worship God together. So having a personal attachment to the psalms because of how it makes us feel is not necessarily a bad thing because, well, these psalms were written so that we could be encouraged in worship and so that we could see the different ways that worship can be expressed. But there is more to the psalms than just showing us how we might worship God. There are some psalms where God divinely inspires the psalmist to write, to give people an idea of what will happen in the future, so that God's people will have hope, so that we'll know what to expect. And Psalm 110 is one of those psalms. In Psalm 110, we have what we call a messianic psalm, a psalm that speaks of Messiah, And in this particular case, Psalm 110 is meant to be a preview of the hope that is to come in the future. And so what we will find this morning are two reasons, two reasons to anticipate and worship Yahweh's Messiah. The first is that Messiah will rule as king, and the second is that Messiah will reign as priest. So the first reason to anticipate and worship Yahweh's Messiah is that Messiah will rule as king. One of the first things that you'll notice in your Bibles when we read Psalm 110 is that right underneath the chapter heading, there's a subtitle. There's a subtitle that says, of David, a psalm. And these, two, these, these words are significant for two reasons. First, it clearly tells us that the author of the psalm is David. Sometimes knowing the author of the psalm or even of the book of the Bible that we're studying is really important because it gives us an idea of why this author may have written. Or even the theology that might be going through the author's mind. And so, as we understand that this author is David, when he talks about Messiah... When he talks about the future king, we understand because David understands that Messiah is a significant person that we must pay attention to because it's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. So when he writes about Messiah, we know that there's a lot of hope, a lot of expectation that is attached to that. Second, the fact that it is a psalm tells us that David wrote this psalm with the intention that it be sung. With the intention that it will be sung. Which is why, after all, it is in the songbook of the Old Testament. So right away, we understand that this psalm is meant for God's people. Right? It's not just an FYI. It's not just so that people could know things. But it's meant to help God's people understand what God will do in the future. The reason why we sing it... Is to bring it to mind, to remind us of the truths that are present, that have been revealed, of the hope that is to come. And so, verse one says, "This Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet." God occasionally used King David as a prophet. David wasn't a prophet all the times, but sometimes God used David as a prophet to reveal his truth to his people. And in this case, Yahweh is revealing a conversation that he has with someone identified as David's Lord. David says, Yahweh says, to my Lord. So he's writing and identifying the fact that this Lord is his Lord. And the fact that David identifies this person as his Lord is significant because it reminds us that this person has a higher honor than David himself. David is not just talking about another human person. He is talking about someone who has a higher rank than he does. So David is not talking about Solomon or any of his other sons, because none of those sons ever have the same have a higher rank than David. He never identifies any of them as his Lord. Or they are his sons, and he himself is the king over all of Israel. There is no one in Israel higher than King David. So who does David reference then? It must be someone more significant than David, but also it must be someone who is more significant than any other human being. How do we know this? It's found in what Yahweh says to David's Lord. Yahweh tells David's Lord to sit at his right hand until he places his enemies as a footstool for his feet. Even in the original context of Psalm 110, the people of Israel would have come to the conclusion that his Lord would have to be more than an ordinary man because to whom would God rightly say, sit at my right hand? Who Would God say that to? He surely cannot say that to another man. Because the idea of sitting at the right hand of someone in the ancient Near East was one of great prestige and authority. One of great honor. And it's such powerful imagery of importance that we still even refer to those who are second in command as the right hand man. So to whom will God give such glory and honor? Surely not a common man who has sin in their nature, because God is a holy God. He has no fellowship with those who are in darkness. So we're looking for someone greater. We're looking for an ultimate king, God's anointed one, God's chosen one. In the original Hebrew, God's Messiah. Or if you want to look to the Greek translation, God's Christ. So not only does Yahweh tell Messiah to sit at his right hand, but we also see that Messiah will sit there until until Yahweh places Messiah's enemies as a footstool for his feet. The imagery of Messiah's enemies as a footstool is one of ultimate victory and subjection of one's enemies. In ancient days, victorious kings would conclude battle by placing their feet on the neck of the defeated kings to remind them that those kings lost and that their lives are at the mercy of the ones who had won. If we fell down and someone put their feet on our neck, we would know that we're in a compromised position. That we are in danger of losing our very lives unless the one who put their feet on our neck had mercy upon us. And so Yahweh makes it clear. He will be the one who will give Messiah ultimate rule and reign over all people. And this is seen especially in verse 2, where it says this, Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Have dominion in the midst of your enemies. The fact that Messiah will rule over all is seen in the fact that Yahweh stretches forth whose scepter. Not his own, but when you look at the text, what does it say? Yahweh will stretch forth your, as in Messiah's, strong scepter. The scepter was the symbol of a king's rule and power. Back in Psalm 2, verse 8 and 9, we see that Yahweh will give his anointed one, his Messiah, the nations as an inheritance he will rule over them. But before he rules over them, he will strike them with a rod of iron. That word rod of iron is the same Hebrew word for scepter. Why does he strike them with that rod of iron? He strikes them to break them of their rebellion against him. And that's why you have that imagery of being shattered like a potter's vessel. Right? If you've made clay before, you know how brittle clay can be. It doesn't take much to break clay. Right? If you had a clay pot in your house and you have a cat who is, mysterious, who is mischievous, not, sorry, not mysterious, but mischievous, all it takes right, is for that cat to just go boop and bam, your clay pot is now, your clay vessel is now broken into hundreds of pieces. And so this rod of iron is meant to symbolize the might and the reign of Messiah He comes, and he comes to win. Going back to verse 2, we see that Yahweh grants Messiah rule over his enemies. And this, of course, is not something that happened in David's day or even after David's day. It's something that is still future. This is something that even the people of God today look forward to, when Messiah will reign supremely over all his enemies. It hasn't happened yet. It will. But it hasn't happened yet. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. In the splendor of holiness, from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youthfulness will be yours. So, on that day of Yahweh's power, or perhaps better translated, Yahweh's wrath, his people will sacrifice themselves freely to serve Messiah. It's reminiscent of this idea of people signing up voluntarily for military service but probably better reflects the heart attitude of believers found in Romans 12.1, where God's people willingly offer their lives up as a living sacrifice to God as their spiritual act of service. Now, returning to Psalm 110.3, God's people volunteer to serve him because their loyalty is to him and to his Messiah. And this is a reminder that every believer in every place ought to live our lives for Him. We ought to live our lives for God. We are all a part of God's great kingdom plan. So how are we serving Him now with our lives? How are we responding to the call to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth? One thing you'll notice in verse 3 is that we see that Yahweh's people will be characterized by holiness, right? They'll be in the, in the splendor of holiness. So, holiness is something that marks us. We ought to be holy. But we also see that we're going to be numerous as the dew on the earth. But then we have this interesting idea of the, the dew of your youthfulness, right? Uh, youthful people will be yours. It's unclear why youthfulness is also highlighted as a future of God's people who volunteer for service, but it certainly does not mean that the only people who serve our Lord are the young among God's people, right? That the, those of us who are older, we can sit back on the sideline and say, well, I've done my job, I've served my allotment in life, it's time for the young people to serve, right? That's not what we're seeing here. Because we see elsewhere in the scripture that the whole church, both young and old, all have a part to play in God's purposes here in the church. The older are to teach the younger, they're to shepherd the younger, the younger are to help serve the older. We see a good mix of all of that within the dynamic of the church. And we even saw that in our day camp this past month, as our members of the church, from those who just graduated fifth grade to those who are grandparents, working together to evangelize those kids that God has entrusted to us. So it wasn't just a young person's task, but we saw that the whole church gathered together to serve, to minister to these children that God has entrusted to us, to bring them the gospel. And so it can't be that these youthful ones who serve our Lord are just there because, well, they're young, it's all of us. Right? But there's no clear evidence as to want, uh, that explains why uh, there is a great number of youthful warriors. So it's best not to speculate about that. But the main point, right, the main point that we want to keep in mind is that Yahweh will not be short of those whom he will raise up to serve him. Yes, the work is great. Yes, the harvest is great. And there are not a lot of workers at the moment. But Yahweh will raise up those he needs to serve. And so knowing that, recognizing that God will reign over all of his enemies and that he will raise up servants to serve him, we are comforted knowing that God knows what he's doing in the future. And even though some of us may feel as if we are slowly losing any ground that the gospel may have gained here in this country, As we watch our world continue on, we are reminded that we are not losing ground. We're not losing ground. After all, brothers and sisters, is God not sovereign? Is God not sovereign? Does he not reign right here, right now? Does he not have a plan? He does. He does. God has revealed the end of, from the beginning so that his people will remember to keep our eyes on him through the difficult times that we experience and that's the ultimate flex of authority and power is it not god declaring the end from the beginning and god making it come to pass he declares the end from the beginning so that we can see that he is mighty, so that we can see that no one is like him. We can make our predictions of what will happen, but it will not always come out the way that we predict it. But for God, when he reveals the end from the beginning, he does not fail in one detail. He keeps all of his promises. All of the things that he says will happen will happen. And so, that is our reminder That when all in the world seems hopeless, when hope seems lost, that not all is lost. Because our hope is not in this current world, but in the one who has the power to make all of Messiah's enemies a footstool for his feet. Our hope is in the one who will enable Messiah's complete and total victory so that he will rule over all the earth. And so, do not lose hope. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in growing in holiness. Rather, remember our call to serve the Lord with our lives. Using the particular giftedness that we have, the time that we have, and seasons that we have. We use all of that to our advantage in making the coming ruling king known. And that brings us to the second reason to anticipate and worship Yahweh's Messiah, which is the fact that Messiah will reign as priest. Messiah will reign as priest. Verse 4. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you were here in our sermon series through the book of Numbers, you'll remember that we were told in Numbers 3 that the priesthood belongs to Aaron, his sons, and to the Levites. If someone tried to take that priestly role, who was not from Aaron and his sons, who were not from the Levites, then Numbers 3.10 shows us that those who tried to act as priests would die. They would face the severe judgment of God. And it doesn't matter whether they were common people or if they were kings. Severe judgment would come. And there were kings in Israel's history who tried to take on the role of priest without God's permission. Saul did so in 1 Samuel 13. He was impatient. He didn't want to wait for Samuel to come. He was losing the crowd. He was losing his army, the faith of his army. And so, in an act of defiance he said, I'm going to take on the role of priest and I'm going to make the sacrifice. And so for that, and when Samuel arrived, he said to Saul, what are you doing? What are you doing? Did you not have faith? God would have established you as king forever, but because of this, the kingdom will be torn from your hands. And then eventually we know Saul and all of his sons, minus Mephibosheth, they all died all of his descendants all died minus mephibosheth even after david became king king uzziah he was a good king he was a righteous king but he grew proud in his heart and so what we saw in second chronicles 26 is that he decided that he would be the one who would light the incense on the altar and immediately because of his pride leprosy broke out and he eventually died both men, of course, did not die right away, but they were judged with death for trying to claim the priestly role for themselves. So there's an interesting issue that we see in Psalm 110, because how can it be that anyone outside of a, a priest could offer sacrifice to God? How can anyone take on that role themselves? What we see, though, in Psalm 110, 4, is that there will be a rightful exception For a king who will function both as king and priest, and that exception is given to Messiah. Now we might be thinking, well, why is there an exception? Is this just nepotism? What's going on here? Why is Messiah allowed to be priest, but no one else? Well, it's because... His priesthood is not the same as the priesthood of Aaron or the Levites. His priesthood is not a Levitical priesthood. It's according to the order of Melchizedek. And that leads us to a question. Who is Melchizedek? Well, we mentioned him in our study of Hebrews 5, but it's been a little while since we've been in Hebrews. And so if you don't remember or if you could benefit from a refresher, Melchizedek is introduced to us in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And we see in verse 18 of Genesis 14 that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, and we have no other information about who he is, who his family was, how he became king, or how he became a priest, but we do know one thing. He was a king, and he was a priest of who? God Most High. God Most High. Not much more is told of us in the scriptures about Melchizedek outside of these facts, that he is king and that he is priest of God Most High. But what is significant about Melchizedek is that he was a priest of God before any other priesthood was established. In Genesis 14, he's interacting with Abraham. So we know that the Levites don't even exist yet. So he's interacting with Abraham, and he was not a priest exclusively for Abraham and Abraham's descendants, because he was already serving as a priest. So he was a priest for all who would worship God. In verses 19 through 20, we see that Melchizedek, as the priest king, he was in a position to bless Abraham and receive offerings from Abraham for God. And that reminds us, right, that reminds us that Melchizedek was one who had a higher honor, higher position than Abraham, because he could both bless and receive offerings from Abraham. In a way that you know, Abraham couldn't do for himself. Right? So how does that relate back to Psalm 110? Well, verse 4, it helps us understand the priesthood of Messiah. You see, his priesthood is not like that of the Levites. He does not need to make atonement for himself. He has no sin nature. He does not intercede purely on behalf of the Israelites either. He intercedes on the behalf of all of God's people, all who will believe, regardless of their ethnicity. And of course, we cannot forget that he is both priest and king. He has power to rule and to reign. He has power to destroy, but he also has power to intercede, to show mercy, to show kindness. Now, we don't want to move off his power to rule too quickly, though. Because while he will intercede on behalf of the people, the power to rule and judge rebellious sinners also belongs to him. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings in the day of his anger. He will render justice among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will crush the head that is over the wide earth. And so what we see here in an interesting switch No longer is Messiah seated at the right hand of God. Now we see that the Lord is at the right hand of Messiah. Yahweh is standing at Messiah's right hand, enabling Messiah's victory. They work together as one to judge the nations. And this judgment is not sugarcoated, is it? It's not jail time and then release, it's not a citation. It's not a time-out for 20 minutes. It's war. People will die. The language is on the one hand brutal, but on the other hand just. All at the same time. It says here that Yahweh will crush kings in the day of his anger. Why? not because they were innocent, just doing their own thing, but because, that they, because they were in active rebellion against him. In Psalm 2, 2 verse 3, we see that these rulers, they're not passive in their rebellion against God and Messiah. They are active, right? They are in active rebellion against God. They are conspiring together and they have this attitude in them. Let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. They're trying to get free. They don't want to have to listen to God. They don't want to have to submit to God. They want their freedom. They want to rebel. But God, he's not scared, nor is he surprised when they rebel. He doesn't go, I had no idea you guys were going to do this. What am I going to do now? No, what does he do? What is his response? What do we see when you look at the rest of Psalm 2, he sits in the heavens and he laughs. He laughs at their attempt to gain their own freedom. He mocks them. And instead of cowering in fear, he reminds them, my king has been installed on Zion. In other words, you will all die. Checkmate. You will not survive. If you rebel against me, you will not survive. You will die. He warns the nations that they are to serve him. He warns them that they ought to submit themselves to the Son, symbolizing by kissing him. Verse 12, lest he become angry and they perish in the way. When the time for patience is over, Yahweh and his Messiah will judge the peoples of the earth. Returning to verse 6 of Psalm 110, we see that Yahweh is very much interested in justice. He He will render justice among the nations. Every nation on earth will be held accountable to whether they heed the warning to submit to the Son. Whether they heed the warning to serve God and His Messiah. And as we can clearly see, though God has offered warnings, though he has offered mercy and grace, there will still be rebellion in those final days, which is why he will fill the nations with corpses and why God will crush the the, the head of the chief men that are over the whole earth. You see, everyone whether they be great or whether they be small, will be held accountable to God in those last days. No one will escape his justice. No one will escape his wrath. Think about this. There is no sin. There is no sin that will not be accounted for on, those last, on that last day. Every sin will be dealt with justly. And righteously. Every sin will be punished. There will be no sins that have been forgotten. Those sins will either be paid for. In the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or they will be paid for in the eternal wrath of God against all sin. Either way though. Every single sin will be accounted for. There will be no leftovers. There will be no injustice. Perfect justice will have been accomplished. Which is why. God wins in the end. Verse 7 of Psalm 110. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, David purposefully leaves verse 7 ambiguous. Because when you look at verse 7, you're trying to figure out, who's the he that will drink from the brook by the wayside? Who's the he that will lift up his head? Are we talking about the same person or are we talking about two different people? Who are we talking about here? David leaves it ambiguous on purpose, because whether the he who drinks by the brook and raises his head is Yahweh or Messiah, they both do so as a symbol of victory. If it's Yahweh, we're reminded that he lifts up his head in victory because he's the one who enables the victory of Messiah. If Messiah is lifting up his head, it's because he is declaring that he's won that he has victory, that he has sovereign rule over all of his enemies. And there is no doubt, that there is no doubt that Yahweh and his Messiah will win in the end. Now sure, it might seem as if there are times where we're losing ground, where it seems as if things are headed towards a point of no return. But when we remember When we remember that the ultimate priest-king, God's Messiah, rules and reigns over everything, we know that things are not out of control. Rather, things are going according to plan. Things are going all according to God's plan. You might hate it. You might not like it. You might cry out and you might be asking God, God, where is the justice? Where is your righteousness? What is happening right now? You might be tempted to think that, but but we remember the hope that we have. We remember the fact that he's not lost control. He's not asleep at the wheel. Everything that he allows into our lives and into the big picture plan of everything, right, is on purpose. And so as a result, those of us who remember the reign of Messiah as king and as priests ought to be encouraged by the fact that the one who rules and reigns is the one who does not just defeat everybody, but he's also the one who shows mercy to us, or he's the one who intercedes for us. It is he who has delivered us from our sins. He makes it possible for us not to be among those who will righteously be judged by Yahweh in the end. And since we have our Lord Jesus as our high priest who delivered us all from our sins, right? Once for all from our sins, we ought to give him praise. We ought to give him thanks. We ought to strive to make him known to the world. And though we may be tempted to be distressed by the state of our world, we ought to continue to pray in hope. What is that hope that we're hoping for? The hope that we're hoping for is our Lord's kingdom. And we would pray that His kingdom would come, that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. this morning we had the chance to study two reasons to anticipate and worship Yahweh's Messiah. We were reminded that Messiah will reign, or sorry, he will rule as king. That God has given him the right to rule, and no one else has the right to rule. It is his alone. And as a result, he will certainly have victory over all the nations because the nations are his, they're his inheritance. We were also reminded that Messiah will reign as priests. He is the king. He will judge, but he also has a priestly function. Not just for the Jews, but for all who believe. And there will be a time of intercession. There will be a time of mercy. There will be a time of patience. But if people are not careful, the time for mercy, the time for patience, it will run out. And the time for judgment will begin. We we are reminded of the fact that In the end, God always wins. God always wins. For those of you who are here this morning and you are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, take courage and take hope. Yes, we can feel and see the influence of sin even more in our culture. Yes, we get the sense now more than ever that we will likely face persecution for our faith. Yes, we see that the comfort that we enjoy in this life will be threatened. But we don't lose heart and we don't lose hope. Why? Because our hope is not in those things. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in going to a particular college. Our hope is not in a particular career. Our hope is not in marriage. Our hope is not in children. Our hope is not in retirement. If you put your hope in any of those things, you will be disappointed. You might have hope temporarily, but you will be let down. You will realize that it is not enough because it never was meant to be enough. Our hope is not in those things, rather, our hope is in our Lord. Our hope is in the fact that God wins. It is in the fact that God has already won. And as a result, we have nothing to fear. And so, brothers and sisters, be strong and courageous. Don't live this life with a spirit of fear and timidity, but trust in our Lord. And by the way, don't grow complacent either, but press on towards maturity, continue to press on towards Christ-likeness. We all readily admit that we've not arrived yet, that we're not perfect yet. That we're not like Christ as we should be now in this life. So why, why do some of us act as if we know everything that we need to know about the Bible already? Why do we act as if we don't need any more knowledge? We have enough. We've prayed the prayer. We're good. Remember the warning that we find in Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. See to it, brothers, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, the author of Hebrews, when he writes these warning passages, he writes it in such a way that when we hear the warning, that we might feel the weight of that warning. That even if you are a believer, it's shocking enough, it's strong enough that we're meant to check ourselves. That we're meant to examine ourselves. Because there is a possibility that if we do not watch over our own souls, that we will drift. Not that you can lose your salvation, but you'll be exposed as those who do not have true saving faith. You see, it's not hard to play church. It's not hard to look like a Christian, to talk like a Christian, and to do the works of a Christian. But if the whole time we've not been saved, but we've been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, we will be revealed to be those who have always ran parallel to saving faith, but never intersected and got in line with what true saving faith is. Those who fall away are not those who've been saved, because you cannot lose your salvation. But you've been revealed to be running in parallel. You fell in parallel. You're no longer, you're, you've never been in saving faith. Right? You guys remember geometry. If there are parallel lines, they never intersect, right? They never intersect. For those who fall away, they've been found to be in parallel of saving faith. They never had it to begin with. So we are meant to examine our hearts, to make sure that there is no evil, unbelieving heart in us. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we ought to all press on towards maturity, that we ought to know Christ, not to earn our salvation, mind you. But to be assured of our salvation, to check our hearts when we see passages like this and to consider, do I really love God? Do I really know God? Or do I just know things about God, but I don't have any practice that reveals that I know him in my life? So don't. Be like those who are self-deceived and have unbelieving hearts. But continue to cling to the hope of the gospel that we've been given. Right, that's why we press on towards maturity. Because right? you can't love someone you don't know. And if you say, I love God, but you don't know him as he revealed himself in his scriptures, then how do you love God? So we must strive. Strive. To know him and to love him as he has revealed himself in the Word, because we want to become like our King, who has accomplished salvation for us. And so, for believers, this is the thing that we ought to do: examine ourselves, make sure that we're in the faith, press on towards maturity, and live in light of that saving faith that we've been given. If you are here this morning and you know you're not a Christian, Or perhaps you suspect that you're not a Christian. I encourage you to take heed of these warnings that are found in the scriptures today. God will uphold justice either in this life or in the judgment. So please do not be like those who are judged by God, who are examined by God and found lacking. God is patient and he is kind. We see in 2 Peter 3.9 that he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to repent. But we also know that he will not be patient forever. So while it is still today, I urge you to acknowledge your sin before God today. To place your faith in him this very day, this very hour, so that you may be saved from the judgment that is to come. That rightfully comes towards all who remain in their sins. And if you have questions about salvation, please feel free to come find me after the service. I'll be glad to speak to you more about the gospel. Or if you have friends that you feel a little more comfortable with who are here in this service, please feel free to talk to them about saving faith as well. I'm sure they would be glad to talk with you about Jesus. Now, before I pray and invite the worship team to lead us in a response song, let me provide you with some application questions to consider. And First is this. In what ways does the way that you live life or think about life reflect hope in God? Right? In what ways does hope show up in your life? Right? Does does your life show that you have hope in God, or does it not? And the second question is that second, that uh, backup question, a parallel question, I suppose. In what ways does your life uh, the sorry In what ways does the way you live your life or think about life reflect a lack of trust in God? We do demonstrate lack of trust in God in our lives at times, right? So how does our lives show that? And what can we do about that? And so all that wrapped up in question number three, how might we pray in response to Psalm 110? You know that our Messiah, he's come, he's coming again, that he reigns, that he reigns, and he also intercedes on our behalf. So how do we respond to him? And that's what we ought to be thinking about this morning. Let's pray. Our God, we're grateful for the kindness that you show us. We're grateful for your love, for the fact that you intercede for us. And so we pray that we would live in response to the fact that you rule and that you reign, that we would be thankful to you for the salvation that we have and that, Lord, we would strive to find our hope in you because you've already won. Thank you, Father, for this time that we could read your word. And as we sing, may you be glorified. It's your son, and we pray. Amen.